Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankov. This week, I talk with Andreas Turinen, a research analyst at the Conflict Studies Research Center in Finland, and Joseph Cherovich, a defense analyst who focuses on cyber and information warfare. We are going to talk about the papers that they wrote for our published volume on Russian military affairs. Specifically, we were going to discuss electronic and psychological operations and the roles they play in Russian doctrine and strategy. Interesting conversation, very timely and, and relevant, and hopefully uh, interesting and useful for you as well. Let's get started. Andres, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to talk today about the challenge of Russian electronic warfare capabilities. So to start, could you tell us a little bit about what exactly electronic warfare refers to in general, and then specifically in the Russian context, does Russia use electronic warfare capabilities in ways that are different from, say, the U.S. or, or how other powers use them? Thank you, Jeff. When talking about electronic warfare, it refers to a, a way of war uh, that is fought on the electronic domain. So in the Russian context, electronic warfare has very long traditions since the Russian Empire and the invention of radio. And during the Soviet times, electronic warfare was very well integrated to the overall doctrine of the uh, Soviet Union. And just and to be clear, we're talking here about efforts to disrupt the other side's electronic communications, right? That we're not talking about espionage. Of course, in electronic support measures, there are also intelligence elite measures included. Okay. So the goal is to collect as well as suppress activities that the opponent is doing in the electronic space. Exactly. So strategically, um, how does Russian doctrine approach this tool of electronic warfare? Where does it fit within the sort of overall operational concept? In the overall operational context, it actually spans from the very tactical level to a very strategic level. As I already mentioned, it's very well integrated on the, all the branches of service, and it continues to be so. For example, there was the day of Russian radio electronic forces, and there were interesting articles and interviews about what is the actual role of the electronic warfare today. And I think the main outtake was that it is actually a spearhead capability of Russian armed forces today. So what does that mean in practice, spearhead? What it means that it is one of the main ways for the Russian armed forces to actually expand and multiply their capabilities. So it acts as a force multiplier. And also it expands the range of attack vectors that mm -hmm. could be possibly used against adversaries. So, for instance, if a conflict were to break out between Russia and, let's say, NATO, electronic warfare would be one of the first areas where Russian forces would seek to engage to disrupt and suppress NATO's ability to communicate. Absolutely. And also, uh, in the earlier stages of conflict, if we mm -hmm. talk about these hybrid approaches and gray zone activities. Right. And that's one of the interesting things about this capability is that it does kind of cross the boundary between what in the West we think about as conflict and pre-conflict. If you're just using these electronic means, it's unclear in sort of our thinking whether this is a traditional military operation or something that falls short of that threshold. Absolutely. 
And one of the interesting issues nowadays is because we have digital societies and our societies and especially civilian infrastructure is very vulnerable against electronic warfare. And so when discussing about hybrid, hybrid spans over the military domain to the civilian areas. And this creates very interesting approaches to the issue, especially now when we have uh, cyber, we have the 5G, all these topics that uh, are very popular today in the public discussion. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the new technical capabilities that Russia is developing in this space? What are some of the new uh, systems and and capabilities that you're particularly uh, looking at? I would say that instead of looking at the technological advances, because basically the idea of the systems has been relatively the same uh, since the Soviet period, but what we are looking at now, or what would be the most interesting thing to look at, uh, is how these systems are used. So, as I mentioned in my paper, and it's also mentioned in Joe's paper, it's the uh, combining psychological influencing capabilities with the electronic warfare capabilities. So. This is the main, I'd say, most interesting topic to look at now on this, on the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And these are things like disinformation campaigns, both things that are targeting military forces, but also targeting um, societies at large. Exactly. So, for instance, in the United Kingdom, there was uh, an attack against 5G tower, and this was due to disinformation stemming from uh, conspiracy theories. So also one way of looking at electronic warfare on a hybrid perspective is not just the use of, uh, let's say, conventional electronic warfare capabilities against civilian systems, but also these are the uh, new creative attack vectors that can also be used to achieve electronic effect. Mm -hmm. Moving from Russia to the United States or, or NATO, based on what we're seeing in terms of the developing capabilities on the Russian side, how can allied militaries, allied governments respond to Russian electronic warfare capabilities? I think the main thing and way to respond uh, is to acknowledge uh, the threat. And because electronic warfare is present everywhere, it's not just a strategic issue. It's on the level of every soldier, every sailor, every unit, every theater. So the best way to defend and uh, protect our forces against these capabilities is firstly to acknowledging the threat uh, comprehensively, uh, secondly to find means and ways, let's say, new ways of training troops uh, in the electronically denied environments using uh, secure wide communications over wireless communication technologies and also creating electronic warfare capabilities to respond against the uh, Russian threat. And what would those capabilities look like? For instance, United States has very capable systems already on disposal. On my paper, I've mentioned the EA-18G Grover electronic uh, warfare platform, which is uh, highly capable. And also now it's on the process on an updating on the second generation level. And could you explain a little bit about what it does? EA-18G Crawler is basically a weapon system more like an electronic warfare platform on the Super Hornet uh, fighter plane, where it can conduct both electronic attack, electronic gathering, and also, if I've understood correctly, electronic protection of home troops. 
Can you talk a little bit about the vulnerabilities? Why and in what ways allied countries and militaries are particularly vulnerable to Russian electronic warfare measures? Thank you, Jeff. That's an excellent question. So the main issue here is the technological superiority of our armed forces. We have become very, very dependent on the systems and weapon platforms that are reliant on digital communications, uh, digital uh, electronic systems, and so forth. Okay, let's move on to, to Joe. Joe, thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about your paper uh, from leaflets to likes uh, on the digitalization and rising prominence of psychological operations in Russia's military. So we've talked about electronic capabilities, but of course those capabilities operate within a particular context. And, and one of the things that they do, as, as Andres described, is that they try and shape the thinking of both military forces and societies more broadly. That is that they uh, are a tool within the broader framework of psychological operations. So can you give us a, a brief overview of sort of the role that psychological operations as a concept play uh, in the Russian military? And then to kind of pivot off of what Andres was talking about, how Russian electronic capabilities fit into these psychological operations objectives. Certainly. So again, the correlation between psychological operations and the electronic warfare capabilities that Andreas has already mentioned is, is very strong. And I think as Andreas has already discussed, this is largely an asymmetric means of approaching an opponent, um, attempting to fracture them along ethnic, religious, social divisions, particularly at periods when opponents are deemed to be conventionally superior to Russia. And this is a very consistent refrain in military operations in Russia's history. Uh, as Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, they resorted increasingly to leaflets targeting non-French soldiers in attempts to get them to turn on their supposed French uh, masters and adhere to Russian military objectives. Uh, World War I, the Russian military relied uh, heavily, at least in the early years, on leaflets that attempted to convince Slavic nationalities to turn against the central powers as they advanced across Eastern Europe. Yeah, I wrote my dissertation in grad school about that, actually. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. There's a, there's a great Russian historian who did a, a very comprehensive review of Russian military leaflets during the Great War, hmm. and it's, a, it's an excellent read. But again, you see that occur in World War II as the Germans drove toward Moscow, the emphasis on what was then called special propaganda to help turn the tide against the advancing Axis armies there was an increased exigence on that. All of those cases did much to reinforce the importance of psychological operations in Russia's military history. What's very interesting is that there's much done to shoot itself in the foot as far as these capabilities go. So for instance, in the pre-war campaigns, the 1938 to 1940 roughly, uh, at the same time that the Soviet military recognized that there's a growing importance for psychological operations or what they termed special propaganda, uh, rampant purges of the military deprived it of the human capital needed to conduct those operations. So language specialists, regional affairs officers, uh, the most vulnerable to, of course, purges within the military. In the Cold War as well, at a period where ideological confrontation was uh, very strong, the Soviet military was again deprived of the opportunity to sort of build these things. A lot of that was tied to bureaucratic politicking, of course, the fall of Zhukov as defense minister in, in the late 1950s, things like that. 
a lot of their capabilities were sort of siphoned into other things, such as the KGB. Uh, and, and just kind of an interesting side note to that, one of the early uh, leaders of the KGB illegals program was actually training to become a special propaganda officer within the Russian military and was eventually pulled to go into that program, which is sort of emblematic of the Cold War period where the military takes a very clear second seat to other security ministries when it came to quote-unquote psychological warfare, that sort of thing. In what ways has Russia's current approach diverged from the kind of things that we saw during the Cold War have built on those things? I mean, are we really just repeating the things that happened in that period? Or, you know, what is new about the way that these operations are, are carried out today? So that's a great question. And I think this is what contemporary operations show us is largely a, a case of a new wine in old bottles, which is to say that the, the means of propagandizing enemy forces and populations have changed. They've come, they become increasingly digital, increasingly part of cyber operation, computer network operations. Um, plenty of work and research has been done in recent years on Russia's ability to integrate psychological operations with cyber attacks and things like that. But the underlying thought, the underlying premise behind psychological warfare has roughly remained the same uh, since its early foundation in Russian military history, yeah. which is to say diversity within a target audience, within an, an enemy coalition, an enemy state, is a vulnerability and one that should be exploited. Whether that diversity is ethnic or religious or social, that's something that can be exploited. That's an opening that an asymmetric means of warfare can uh, sort of bring a superior foe to heal. Another key difference between uh, the Soviet period and what we experience now is of course, resources, which is nothing revelatory. But in the Soviet period, there were far more personnel allocated to these things than there are today. So the gap between the chief most threat in Russia's view, which is NATO, the West, uh, primarily the United States, and Russia's current military capabilities in these realms uh, is much wider than it used to be, at least per the perception of Russian military authors. Well, and one of the things, and this also gets back to the discussion of electronic warfare, is that the network effect of the way that Western societies are networked and are, are connected to the Internet means that you don't need that one piece of information, one campaign can spread much more rapidly and more widely than it could using traditional methods. So, you know, in some ways you get more bang for your buck or, or, or your ruble. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, you see that pretty candidly discussed in military journals. What I like to refer to as the golden period researching this stuff via Russian language sources is sort of like the late 1990s through roughly 2013, where things were probably a little bit more candid than they are today for operational security reasons. But you see them discuss that fairly explicitly in, in several instances where the internet, which simultaneously is something to be feared, but also a potential means of undermining the West is something that's very cost-effective at a time when Russia needs it most. I don't think there's any illusion uh, within the Russian military that their budget, their personnel are eclipsed by their chief most adversary. And so digital operations provide a means of circumventing those resource shortages to go after the West through an asymmetric means. Yeah. And of course, we talk about this a lot in the, the context of disinformation and fake news and, and all of those things. But can we bring it back to discussion specifically in the military context? How does Russia's approach to 
psychological operations. How would that play out in the event of a military clash? In a military clash, I think you would see, compared to what we uh, see at a period of relative stability or a tense peace, um, would be a far greater focus on specific military units and targeting of military units with messaging. So we see this a lot in Ukraine already with SMS text messages distributed to specific units along the front in eastern Ukraine that aim to demoralize them or to agitate them. Uh, Sometimes it's targeting the population with fake calls to arms, fake mobilization orders in order to sort of stir social discontent near the front line. You would see far more of that, and I think far more expansively than you do today. Um, That's not to say that there aren't current operations doing the same thing. For instance, NATO's enhanced force presence in the Baltics is a a very sore spot, and you see uh, certain online operations targeting that, particularly Lithuania, Latvia. I think in the event of overt conflict with NATO, of course, these things are in part designed to prevent that from ever happening. But in that event, you would see a far more expansive effort, far more delegation to military district and local commands, and more targeting of specific military units. Let's bring Andres back in. And, and so now I'm going to ask some questions and both of you feel free to, to jump in on these. You know, you both emphasized how electronic and, and psychological operations are, are tools that Russia uses to compensate for conventional inferiority vis-a-vis NATO and the West. How would you assess the the success of addressing or redressing that balance through electronic and psychological means? In other words, how effective do you think that Russia's development and deployment of these capabilities has been in, in redressing that balance? I think that one of the most important issues here is that we actually know about it. So this the strategic communications aspect. So when doing this, it's actually influencing our thinking of how the future conflict might go. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's been successful in that there, as uh, Vladislav Surkov put it a a while back, you know, we're inside your head. It's very difficult to say whether it has been like super successful or less successful. Of course, there's been successes, but also shortcomings. Mm -hmm. What are some of those shortcomings? Or, you know, where has this uh, approach notably failed? Well, it's also difficult to say notably failed, but at least one way to look at is the um, the scale of the use of electronic warfare. Because in eastern Ukraine, there's mostly very much this like testing the capabilities and stuff. So they both have successes in a way, as we have seen SMS influencing operation. But also, I think that Russia is trying to also cover the unsuccesses, if you know what I mean. Cover them up. Yeah, of course, because every military, they want to hide their shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Joe, what do you think? Have there been um, clear examples where where you would say that these capabilities have succeeded and where they failed? I think that's a great question. Um, I would say complete agreement with Andreas. I would say NATO particularly has much more to fear, at least operationally, from electronic warfare capabilities than they do psychological operations. Just to say that despite increased importance in Russian doctrine and, and operations, I don't think these things are all that effective, at least to the extent Russia hopes they would be. A large shortcoming on their end, I think, is objective evaluation of these operations. 
Well, that's been, not there, and I think we struggle with that too. Oh, a- absolutely. So with that in mind, I think the problem is far more extensive and chronic on their end than it is on ours. Often within the, particularly within the United States, there's just a lack of expertise on measures of effectiveness, uh, and that's brought in far too late. Uh, so you'll see this extensive analysis of, for instance, psychological operations conducted by the U.S. during uh, operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, but that'll come out far too late to affect temporary things. With Russia, it's a little bit different, I feel. Historically, and I, I suspect pretty strongly currently, psychological operations units provide a means of comfortably serving obligatory periods of military service for a lot of youth, college-aged youth within Russia. Mm-hmm. That being said, that constitutes a, a largely apathetic rank and file, which is not to say that there aren't low-ranking officers, enlisted members that are completely committed to the cause of undermining the West through military psychological operations. But that sort of malaise at the lower level, I think, impacts these things. And coupled with the fact that there is little evidence to suggest that they seriously evaluate these things, and there's a lot of reasons affecting that, I think really limits their ability to do things like target audience analysis before they launch their operations to fully understand the troops or the populations that they intend to persuade. A lot of bureaucratic rivalry currently and, and, and historically has affected this too. There's no reason for the Russian military to communicate anything other than blatant success on their end with psychological warfare. Every military everywhere. <laughs> Correct. Yes. If we, we too vie for budgets and things like that. So I would say that oversight though is far more limited. That Mm-hmm. Often reporting from mid-echelons is just taken at face value, and there's really no reason to dig into it any further than that. There are, of course, instances of success. I think some of these operations currently are, are unattributed. Most recently, Ukraine's intelligence service, the SBU, pointed to some riots that arose from suspected information operations uh, in Novi Sanjari, Ukraine. Supposedly, according to the SBU, there was this ongoing effort. I don't think they point to Russia specifically, but to stir local discontent through social media about uh, supposedly patients infected with coronavirus arriving uh, for things like that, which which led to physical rioting and, and right. had uh, very clear consequences, however short-lived those might have been. Uh, but I think cases like those evidence the potential for psychological operations to have a, uh, at least a short-term but very clear impact on mm-hmm. the countries, the militaries that they're targeting. Yeah. So speaking from the perspective of countries and and militaries that are being targeted, what are some of the recommendations that you both would make in terms of how the U.S. and and NATO allies should respond to what we're seeing in the electronic warfare and and psychological operations space? I leave this to Andreas, but from my perspective, I think it would benefit NATO and the U.S. military to invest more in electronic warfare capabilities than to fret about psychological operations. I think the gap between NATO and Russia in terms of electronic warfare is far wider. And I don't think NATO's at risk of having mass desertions or defections because of uh, some seamless digital influence campaign targeting its militaries or its populations. I would highlight some of the current efforts undertaken by NATO member states, uh, particularly Lithuania, to very quickly respond to disinformation Uh, Just suspected psychological operations. Uh, There's been much written about the elves, so the grassroots movements to identify these things as as quickly as possible. Uh, Those seem to be very effective. Uh, Lithuania established a website, independent agency dedicated to doing this sort of thing. So a lot of that seems to be effective. Unfortunately, I I think 
the more alliance-wide efforts need improvement. I think the establishment of, the, of STRATCOM in Riga was a very positive step forward. Further integrating national capabilities into that network, I think, would be beneficial to defending against psychological warfare emanating from Russia. Mm-hmm. Which requires a greater degree of consensus among the different national governments. And, you know, I, I think one of the challenges now is that different governments assess both the degree of the threat, but also the appropriate response to the threat in very different ways. You, know, you take a country like Germany, for example, their you know, view of this is that you don't play whack-a-mole with, to, you know, to, to introduce an American idiom here, with these kind of psychological or, or disinformation campaigns, right? You, you tell your story, you build institutions that are resilient and that people trust, and you assume that at the end of the day, people will be more inclined to believe the true things that you're saying rather than the, the false things that the enemy is saying. Now, that works in a particular context where you have strong institutions, high levels of public trust, low levels of corruption and the like. I think in some of the other national contexts in, in Europe and in NATO, that is more difficult. And the approach of, of responding and, and debunking disinformation and, and psychological operations is, is more pronounced. So one of the challenges, you know, really seems to be how do you get 28 or 29 countries to be on the same page in terms of thinking about the nature of the threat and the way that you respond to it. Completely agree. I would add that an additional challenge is getting all members to trust each other to an extent they can share information along these threats. Considering the contemporaneity of a lot of these operations, the fact that they're conducted by Russian actors and attribution requires a lot of technical evidence to back these things up. It requires a lot of information sharing that I'm not confident NATO uh, can facilitate uh, without a greater degree of trust. And and how you establish that, I think, is a question I certainly can't answer. Right. Well, especially because there are concerns that a lot of, or not a lot, but some NATO governments and, and militaries and security services are leaky, right? Or that have been, either that they've been penetrated or that there are people within them who are actively collaborating with folks on the Russian side. That makes the the trust question very, very challenging. Andres, on the uh, electronic warfare side, what are some of the things that you would suggest U.S. and and allied militaries and and governments do to to more effectively respond? Yeah, so in my opinion, we are doing the things well. This is not the issue. We just need to do it more. Mm -hmm. And so that not necessarily doing the same way as Russia does, because uh, we have our own ways of doing electronic warfare. But my main recommendation is that we have to have this sort of a comprehensive approach. Firstly, intermilitary, where the ways and means to operate in an electronically denied environment, it's expanded to uh, every single soldier, every single sailor, uh, every single unit, and so forth. And secondly, uh, recognizing the civilian aspect here, because uh, it provides this uh, very fertile attack vector that can be easily exploited and utilized. Okay, well, uh, Andres, Joe, thank you for joining us today. Take care and be well. You too. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay, that's it for our show today. Thanks, as always, for joining. You can find a link to uh, to their reports that we published in the show notes. 
As always, uh, if you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette uh, on iTunes, where you can also leave a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can subscribe uh, on Google Play or SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. As always, big thank you to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast happen. That includes our producer, research assistant, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iWeb team. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.